Father, we do thank you for your grace which waters our lives daily. Uh, We need it. (laughs) We cry out for it. And on this, the first day of the week, let us go into the week refreshed, encouraged in our risen Savior. Strengthen us in this Sunday school and in our worship in Christ's name. Amen. So, young people, you guys can head out. And for those who are remaining, we're going through Dietrich Bonhoeffer's great classic, The Cost of Discipleship. And I've always appreciated Bonhoeffer and the neo-Orthodox emphasis on experimental piety, that your religion is not a set of propositions, it is a life. It's an experience. There's got to be this heart-level engagement. And in that way, they definitely saw themselves as the descendants of the Reformation. They, they believed that they were building on the house that was started by Luther, by Calvin, and continuing to add to the Reformed understanding of personal piety. And so they'll use words that I absolutely say yes and amen to. And so here's the, the, the dilemma. We've just gone through the Sermon on the Mount, through the lens of the cost of discipleship, the the. The disciples' call is a call to death and to unreserved obedience to the word of Christ. And so he says, now how do we hear that word? Because clearly there's a lot of wisdom. You know, is it wise to do this? Is it wise to do that? How do we hear that word? And Bonhoeffer says, we hear that word through the testimony of the scriptures and through the sacraments. And so last week I tried to point out where Bonhoeffer is is not orthodox. He's, He's not following straight teaching by distinguishing between the testimony and the word. And I think I did a really clumsy job of it. (laughs) And so I want to just take five minutes because what Bonhoeffer says, we all say yes and amen to, I hope. And that is, let's see. We get to the last end of last week's chapter. To the question, where today do we hear the call of Jesus to discipleship? There is no other answer than this. Hear the word. Receive the sacrament. In it, hear himself, and you will hear his call. To which I say yes and amen. Hear the word. Come to the table. Remember your baptism. This is how we understand who Jesus is, how our mind is conformed to the image of Christ. This is uh, being daily in the Word. Here's the problem. There's a sharp divide between what is testimony and what is word. 
And now for Bonhoeffer and for Neo-Orthodox, Karl Barth, number of contemporary guys, uh, the Bible belongs over there. For what I believe is the only view that a Christian can have, it's our first uh, <laughs> vow of church membership. Uh, do you believe that the Holy Scriptures consisting of the Old and New Testaments are the Word of God and the only pure doctrine? Sorry, I petered out there at the end, but it's our first membership vow. The Bible... belongs over here. This is our view. The Bible is the Word of God. The Spirit bears testimony to us that we are in Christ. It, it speaks, it brings the Word alive to us. But this is what the Bible is. The Bible is the Word of God. And so someone asked me afterwards, if I could give a concrete example, and I fumbled the ball, and I realized this past week that Bonhoeffer himself gives the perfect concrete example of this. So I just want to read, this is regarding, is Jesus risen from the dead? When I say Jesus is risen from the dead, how do you... Hear me say that. What, what do you think I mean when I say Jesus is risen from the dead? What do you think I am communicating? First that he died. A real person who could die. <laughs> and he died. He's risen from the dead. <laughs> I mean he's risen from the dead. And I would hope that people can understand plain language when I say I believe in the risen and reigning Jesus Christ, that I believe that he is risen from the dead. He is not a great teacher like Muhammad or Buddha or anybody else. He is the sin bearer, and he was raised for our justification. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the very start. He's risen from the dead. Now, let me read Bonhoeffer's comment on this. The direct testimony of the scriptures is frequently confounded with ontological propositions. This error is the essence of fanaticism in all its forms. For example, if we take the statement that Christ is risen and present as an ontological proposition, it inevitably dissolves the unity of the scriptures, for it leads us to speak of a mode of Christ's presence which is different from that of the synoptic Jesus. So, what he's saying is, if we take the statement that Jesus is risen as an ontological statement, which is a big fancy word for a fact, 
If we say he's communicating an actual truth, just like I say that's a chair, that's an ontological statement. I'm saying something about that thing. (laughs) I'm saying that is a chair. And if I say Jesus is risen, and by that I mean Jesus is risen, Bonhoeffer says it leads to fanaticism. So, there's a practical example. <laughs> and, and so you've got to be careful that we don't... Some of, I, I love Eric Metaxas. He's one of my favorite writers. But I'm not sure that when he hears Bonhoeffer saying the word, that he is really incorporating this real divide that really makes us say, wait a minute, we need to read this critically. We need to read this carefully. And that's why a lot of guys don't like uh, even going through something like this. I think it's worthwhile because I, I do appreciate the emphasis on the experiential, uh, that, that our, our Christian life must be experiential. It's not a series of ontological statements. It incorporates ontological statements. It's founded on ontological statements. Jesus is risen. The Bible is the word of God. God has spoken. And he has revealed himself in the inspired word of God. That is an ontological statement. <laughs> and, and so it incorporates ontological statements. But simply me saying, well, you believe there is one God, you do well. The demons also believe and tremble. Uh, there, there is an experiential connection that is absolutely critical to the, the faith. So, did that clarify or just make it worse? <laughs> Made it worse. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh, thumbs up. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, so the difference when Bonhoeffer says you hear the word of Christ, you encounter Christ, you know the will of Christ in the word and sacrament, and I say yes and amen, it's because I believe in the word and sacrament over here as objective truth, ontological reality, uh, whereas the word for Bonhoeffer is always the engagement with the Jesus of the synoptic gospels. It's always the presence of Jesus in our lives. And so he'll say good things about living our lives, mindful of the presence of Jesus and the control and and shaping influence of Jesus, which leads us to chapter 28. As he has closed chapter 27 and told us, we hear the word in... Or we, we hear the voice of Jesus in word and sacrament. He then turns to the first mark of what it is to be a Christian, which is baptism. And he's got some very helpful things to say regarding baptism. And the first is that God initiates. And this is something that's been striking me recently. 
as I've as I've thought about uh, the big things that evangelical Christians tend to disagree over. One certainly is baptism. Another certainly is the Lord's Supper. Uh, and and so these are areas that very much shape our identity as the Church of Jesus Christ. Which, if you stop and think about it, means it's clearly a divine ordinance. Because if we'd invented it, somebody somewhere would have written it down. (laughs) Somebody somewhere would have said, now, here's what baptism is, and here's why I think it's a great idea, and this is something that you guys really ought to do, and you specifically need to apply it to your babies. Or they wouldn't say that. (laughs) They might say another thing. (laughs) Like, you specifically need to wait until your young people are old enough to make their own profession before you do this really cool thing that we're going to dunk people in in the water over to symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection, or that we're going to pour water over to symbolize the Holy Spirit. All of these things, we would have known why. And we don't. It's a divine institution. It's something that God initiates. We never volunteer the old man to be crucified. We never step up. It is baptism. The man becomes Christ's own possession. We're baptized into Jesus Christ. We are in Christ in baptism. It's it's an initiation by God. It's also, secondly, a breach. Now, I had a dear friend, and and still is a dear friend. My wife and I just visited he and his wife months ago. Uh, But a dear friend in Uganda who is a, a lovely, lovely man, but a, but a committed Hindu. And he is happy for me to pray. He's happy to pray. He would even pray in Jesus' name. He's got no issues. But he would never be baptized. Because he recognizes what the scriptures say baptism is. <laughs> he would never be baptized because baptism is the putting away, let me find my quote here. Uh, oh, this was actually point number four. Sorry. Well, I'm racing ahead anyway. Uh, that baptism is a visible and public act of obedience. Uh, when he joins the church, the Christian steps out of the world, his work, and his family, taking his stand visibly in the fellowship of Jesus Christ. He takes this step alone, but he recovers what he has surrendered, brothers, sisters, houses, fields. And and so this is this public display that baptism is. It's a public statement, a visible and public act of obedience. But before we get there, baptism is a breach. And Bonhoeffer says, Christ invades the realm of Satan, lays hand on his own, and creates for himself the church. I love that image. That's what baptism is. God has initiated this thing 
in which he says the old man is dead, you are now new, and he grabs him out of the realm of Satan and creates a church out of it through the waters of baptism. The old man and his sin are judged and condemned, but out of this judgment a new man arises who has died to the world in sin. And now there's a whole... There's a whole theology of what baptism is that, that is underneath there. Uh, and I don't want to get sidetracked onto this. But just let me say this. Baptism in the Old Testament is always associated with judgment. It's the waters of judgment. And so Jesus notes the connection uh, so, so when God brings the children of Israel out through the waters, those waters of judgment, he brings them out, brings, and, and then later Matthew connects it with the Son, with Jesus Christ himself coming out of Egypt, but he brings him through those waters of judgment on dry land, and then the waters come and judge the Egyptians, those who would persecute the church. That's kind of the, the, the big picture there. But these waters of judgment are connected in a way with baptism, which is why we constantly are baptized into the death of Jesus Christ, as well as his burial. Paul's point in uh, Romans 6. So there's a whole theology under there, and it runs the risk of getting way sidetracked. <laughs> but the other, the, the baptismal death, the, the death component of baptism, it means justification from sin. Baptism into the death of Christ affects the forgiveness of sin and justification and completes our separation from sin. And so what Bonhoeffer is doing here is drawing a real tight connection between baptism and regeneration. And, and so it's helpful to, to maintain that tight connection. It's also helpful to not draw an identity between the two. In other words, I would say if a believer, if a, if, a, if a person is born again and refuses to take a public stand for Jesus Christ, says, I refuse to be baptized, then can you truly say that they are born again? Uh, when, when Jesus pretty clearly says, <laughs> if you deny me, I will deny you. <laughs> It's, so it is kind of a, 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 an important public identification. Our, our confession, our Westminster Confession says that it's important for us to remember that not all who are baptized are regenerate. Uh, and so there is a distinction between the visible and the invisible church. Again, there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of theology underneath that. But I do think it's, yes. Well, it's interesting because the Amish are kind of the offshoot of, uh, or the, they're, they're Joseph Minow, uh, right. 
who was an Anabaptist. <laughs> it was the whole movement saying, <laughs> your covenant baptism no longer counts. You need to be baptized again. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know how they moved from <laughs> minnow to not baptizing. Uh, but certainly their founder, <laughs> their founder was an Anabaptist. <laughs> but at any rate, so... Um, So, so in this, in this, in this connection, in this, in this connection between baptism and justification. So this is, this is, this is the language of looking to your baptism. Uh, this is the kind of language that, that you hear a lot in, in, uh, the New Testament of, of the looking to the baptism. In this connection between baptism and justification, this is where Bonhoeffer really doesn't see how children, specifically infants, should be included in it. And so what I'm doing is pointing out, and Bonhoeffer's a Lutheran, so they baptize. But again, what I'm trying to point out is that while there's a lot helpful, I'm not sure that the seesaw is perfectly balanced in Bonhoeffer. Uh, the seesaw is not balanced in terms of the testimony versus the word. And I don't think the seesaw is balanced here in terms of the personal meaning and connection of baptism. Because that's why our Reformed Baptist brothers and sisters typically do not baptize their babies is because they're looking for this meaningful and personal connection, this this relationship with Jesus Christ to be manifest in their children, and then they apply the sign, or the child seeks to seize the sign uh, for for him or herself. And that's, that's our Reformed Baptist brothers and sisters. And so Bonhoeffer realizes he's kind of going down that path, <laughs> and he kind of admits it. And he summarizes it by saying, well, there just needs to be somebody with faith in the room. Uh, and so the parents are good. <laughs> Which, and, and I think, again, you know, I, I appreciate for us adults, this is what baptism should be. When, when we recall our baptism, we should remember that our baptism is God placing his sign and seal on us. It is an absolute breach with the old man. It is Jesus Christ reaching in and grabbing the person out of the realm of Satan and creating a bride. And that's what baptism signifies, is this new life. We're baptized into Jesus. Uh, And it's part of our Christian breathing. It's part of who we are, part of our identity. Um, And then I already kind of pointed out, baptism is a visible and public act of obedience. And then the other thing he points out is that baptism is final. Uh, it's not a repeated action. I, I know a lot of my dear brothers and sisters uh, who have been baptized at various places repeatedly in their lives, and often it's because they are struggling with doubts. And, you know, am I really a believer? And, and so I believe that I came again, and, and they're, they're baptized again. And I appreciate the heart. I do. But if we begin here, 
Baptism is what God says. Baptism, God says something. And he told me to be baptized. He told me to make this public declaration. He told me whatever this mysterious thing is, God initiated it and he said to me, I claim you. And my job is to wake up every morning and remember that God claimed me and to say, God, help me walk in your ways. I'm your lamb. I'm your sheep. Seek me when I go astray. (laughs) Whack me over the head if need be. (laughs) But I'm your sheep. Lead me in paths of righteousness. And, And that really is kind of what our baptism is all summed up in. Uh, and so I got just two minutes. I mentioned that I think he's imbalanced on the view of personal connection versus the covenant promises because ultimately I agree with him. I agree with him that Baptism says all of these things. But I think that as parents, we're claiming this promise for our child. And we're no longer saying that baptism saves than the Israelites said circumcision saved. The Israelites were constantly called to circumcise the foreskins of their hearts. It was a constant call throughout the Old Testament to make this outward sign an inner reality. And, and this, this recognition of the spiritual inner reality that, uh, is, it, for, for some reason we think that the people in the Old Testament were just morons. They were, they were just clods. Uh, they had no wisdom, no intelligence. They never saw any of the deeper spiritual significance. For some reason they just loved slicing the necks of sheep and, and making a big production out of it. Uh, they, of course they knew what this was about. Of course they understood this is sin and death. Of course they understood this is reconciliation with God. They didn't see it clearly. They looked through a veil in the same way that we look through a veil now and, and behold our Savior. And one day with unveiled faces, <laughs> we'll all see. But, but there was a spiritual, a strong spiritual component uh, And so let me say this final word on baptism and infant baptism versus, uh, we call it credo versus uh, pedo. Uh, Credo baptism means baptism of uh, professing believers. And so we're looking for a child to profess their faith before they're baptized. Credo, that pedo is obviously the baptism of children. I prefer the term covenant baptism because that's what I believe it is. It's it's baptizing them into God's external covenant promises. But now let me fast forward the tape to when that little child is making a public profession of faith. And the thing that I appreciate is we're both looking for the same thing. One of us is asking the questions, looking for the flowering of that grace of God, God initiating that action in the heart of the child, and looking for that flowering, and then saying, now I'd like for you to come and profess your faith. The other is looking at that child, God initiating and doing that work in that child, and flourishing and flowering that child, and saying, now I'd like for you to come and profess your faith. 
With the second, we end up at the table. With the first, we end up at baptism. We're both looking for the same thing in our children. And I got a lot of respect for that. <laughs> That's why I say some of the best covenantal parents I know are Baptists. <laughs> and some of the worst covenantal parents I know are Presbyterians. <laughs> But, but I did want to emphasize that with a, with a distinction between, I, I, I will go on for hours about why I believe covenant baptism is, uh, scriptural and yada, 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 but I will not. Uh, but I do want to emphasize that both of us are looking for the same work of God in the lives of our children. Both of us have the same love for God and the same love for our children and the same nurturing, uh, prayer, uh, for our children. So, with that, let me close. And uh, we'll go into our time of fellowship. Father, uh, thank you for your mercy, your grace that is ours in the waters of baptism. That judgment that we acknowledge that Jesus Christ went through on our behalf. So that we might be dead to the old man and alive to you. Make us joyfully so, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.